0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 139 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger coming to you from Gadigal land, and I am thrilled today to be bringing you an episode that has been a long time coming, my conversation with one of our leading artists, Yvette Coppersmith. For those of you interested in portraiture in Australia, Yvette needs no introduction. She's painted countless portraits, winning the Archibald Prize in 2018 with a stunning self-portrait. But what has most interested me recently is Yvette's abstract works, particularly a body of work I saw in her exhibition, Pressage at Sullivan and Strumpf in Sydney last year thickly textured swirling abstractions and how she came to create that show is as interesting as the paintings themselves and we talk about those in this episode. Yvette has been painting for over 20 years and in addition to winning the Archibald, she won the Metro 5 Art Award and she's been a finalist many times in almost every prestigious Australian portrait prize you can think of, including the Doug Moran, the Porsche Geach, and Darling Portrait Prizes. All the works we talk about are on the website talkingwithpainters.com. So here's my conversation with Yvette and we start it early on in her school years. I
1: just have to tell you, career highlight of primary school. Yeah. This is a big, big moment, and I feel like it is so much about what I am now. Um, I had no idea what I was doing, but I decided to enter the school talent quest, and I wrote a monologue, and I put a costume uh, and character together completely myself, although I did get Mum to take me to the costume shop just to buy a mask which covered your whole head. It was like a latex mask of a bald old man. So the the kids didn't know who I was. I was in character. I had dad's braces and trousers and a shirt and I had a costume underneath. So I was basically, I unrolled a monologue. It was like the absurd life story of this old man and I read that and then he starts talking about his younger girlfriend. And at the end of, I just stripped the first costume off and I was like, turn into the young woman oh my kids. god yeah so at first the kids didn't know who was on the stage and then when I stripped they were all cheering like I was doing some kind of strip tease <laughs> I was thinking, this was grade four <laughs> anyway I after a week of wow. deliberation the judges said that I won and I won the school talent quest, yes.
0: But what how imaginative? My God. But well, they must
1: have and they they kind of favored imagination over the child prodigy violinist. So he came runner up or second prize or something. So for me, that's kind of I think about my practice in terms of surprising an audience. Like who is this? Like often I think I'll have a show where I've changed direction and the audience has to be like, wait, who are we looking at? And I think there's a comfort where um, and our audience wants to walk into a room and recognise who the artist is without having to read the label, and I don't always give them that. Well, I
0: haven't always.
1: And then I'll change again, and like become a different character. So I feel like that's been
0: <laughs> part of my psyche. But also, it's so interesting about how costume is is so in, it was so important even from a young age. You know, because that's all that's that pops up in in a lot of your portraits, just interesting clothing.
1: Exactly. I was very passionate, and I drew figures in costumes, like historical costumes, and I drew faces from my imagination. Like I made them all up. Honestly, I think I wanted to live at Sovereign Hill just so I could get paid to live in a costume,
0: um, like to work there. <laughs> but, What's um, Sovereign Hill Sovereign Hill in Melbourne? Oh,
1: it's in Victoria. It's in Ballarat and it's like a recreation of like the what it was historically, the gold mining um, area. And you've got characters that work there in like historical costume and, of course, I thought, well, maybe if I go and work here, I can just like dress up. Anyway, I've moved on from the crinoline <laughs> a long time ago, but... Um, yeah, look, I, the other thing was, um, my mum cu- really curated my consumption of, um, media. So the very first thing I was finally allowed to watch when I was four, I think, which is quite late for like TV screen time,
0: mm. um,
1: was the ballet that so we sat down and I remember my first experience watching the ballet on TV. And of course, then afterwards I was allowed to watch things
0: like play school. And you also d- did ballet, didn't you?
1: I did. And it was brief. Like I did it for prep and maybe some of grade one. I didn't enjoy the discipline. I wasn't expecting it. I thought it would be more fun Mm. and I think (laughs) I think when you're at that age you just want to play you want to play dress ups. you don't you know I did it for the I wanted to wear a tutu and when I didn't get to wear a tutu in that time I sort of gave up like nothing really (laughs) I later had to buy my own tutu just for fun but um I went back to ballet in grade six just briefly for that year I think and I was a bit older than everyone but um Yeah, it was something that I was drawn to, but I wasn't, it didn't really take off.
0: Yeah, well, we're probably going to touch on ballet again later on in our conversation. But So you did art, obviously, for high school and ended up going to VCA. Um, What was your whole experience like, sort of just basically learning to paint, which is something I'm interested in hearing from an artist because you don't necessarily get to learn to paint at uni. Correct. How did your painting develop over those early years?
1: Um, that's such a good question. So I made the decision with my parents that I would change high schools um, to really focus on a folio and, and actually chose like that should be the path that I go down towards a fine art um course so i made conscious choices to change schools that had more options for art subjects so I would develop a folio and it was really in VCE that a lot of my painting skills really took off and I had good teachers who you know had a great rapport with and they really de- helped me develop drawing and painting skills so once I got accepted into VCA, um I had a skill set already there because they didn't teach that to you and then I would just add to it so if there were voluntary um, life drawing sessions or life painting sessions, I would go to those or I would speak, choose certain lecturers that would sort of say, oh, these are the colours, this is how I lay out my palette. But they were just sort of informal conversations that you had. Yeah. I just remember, that going to VCA at the open day um, And towards the end of year 12 and looking at what the students were making and feeling as though there was nobody there that was making anything that I would do. And, you know, there is, and even when I, I still went and even while I was there, feeling like there was nobody there working in the way that I did and I wasn't fashionable doing what I was doing.
0: Was that a good thing or a bad thing? Did that make you doubt yourself?
1: I didn't doubt myself I just um I think I just stuck to what I was doing and I didn't try to fit in I just thought well (laughs) what I was doing was probably looked a lot more traditional And I thought, but in the context that I'm in, it's actually edgier to do something that's not trying to fit in.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. That's so interesting. It was, and at the time, I just,
1: I was really encouraged in a way, like um, to keep working in a photorealist style. That was getting, you know, good feedback um, mostly. And I was just thinking, okay, look, I just will develop this technique and there's so much you can say within that technique that's just a language a visual language and after 10 years things shifted yeah <laughs> of exactly in a photorealistic exactly. style well yeah.
0: it's very interesting that only you know a couple of years after you finished uni you actually won your first award which was the Metro 5 award i think it was the inaugural award of that of that prize uh, mm. and that was in that photorealistic style can you tell me a little bit about uh what you think caused you maybe to shift from that style over the years if you can pinpoint that
1: yeah no no there were a few factors you know i think i got to a point where you know i had spent a lot of my 20s really working hard a lot of effort to kind of complete the work for a show for shows and not going out because it just if just the time it takes to make the work i mean it still takes time that doesn't change a whole lot but It was arduous and it was effortful and I felt like how long can I sustain a practice like this where I'm not really enjoying the process. Mm. I just became aware if it's a long game, like you need to be enjoying the process of that. Then I had another show and I had one of the first of many short deadlines. I've always had some pretty short deadlines that I've had to meet with varying degrees of success some really successful and and others not but I also realized like I just didn't have the time I would have to shift to get a show done and Mm. also had to wrap the show and it had to be dry so it had so those things start to define or decide for you how much paint can you apply how quickly do you have to work and then there were other factors like um, I'd go to exhibitions and I wasn't looking so much at the 17th century portraiture. I was looking more at the textural work, the abstraction, and I was looking at my contemporaries' work. And and after a little while just realising, oh, my taste has moved. I'm no longer interested in looking at photorealism. Why am I still working in that style? And that was quite a shocking <laughs> revelation where yeah. I felt um, suddenly like I didn't, I sort of had this moment of rejecting what I had previously made like just this moment of you need to reinvent yourself and you have to work out how to do that that's still you um so there's a lot of stages then from there
0: <laughs> well I think one of the first paintings that I noticed of yours was the portrait of John Safran that got into the Archibald and I think mm-hmm. that was 2009 and you could see at that point you were move, You had moved already, moved away because you would you'd use the um, board or the panel, and you'd left that showing through as the background, and you just painted his figure, which was it was much looser than that style that you were doing previously.
1: I can talk to that just briefly. If you look at the work I had as a finalist in two thousand and eight compared to two thousand and nine, huge shift. So two thousand and eight, I painted Paul Capsis. And it was a photorealist style and I had a, you know, rose floral garland that I'd painted on, like a Trump-Loy effect. Yeah. um, Over his image. And then you get to John and it's like raw against the panel. But I also think not only is that reflective of my shift, but it's also like you're moving to adapt to your different subject and mm. the way I had worked with um Paul, it was a very different kind of effect that I wanted to create and then with John he was and I didn't know this at the time it's so interesting we were working we'd have sittings every now and then over a long period maybe 15 months since we first began and I changed from like he should wear a shirt, a black shirt and a tie to no shirt and over that period of time he actually was working on his TV series um, you know it was something to do with religion, but I can't remember the title. Oh yes, and that he was a was great ac-
0: series. Yeah, I forgot. It was title incredible,
1: thing. and yeah. then in the final episode, he got crucified on a cross. Oh, I forgot that. Yes, and there was something incredibly um, vulnerable, and I don't know how he. I don't know any of the details how he did that, but
0: he's very daring. Generally, the yeah, things he does. Yeah,
1: and so I feel like. um the vulnerability of how he puts himself and his body into these situations, um, it was uh, must have come through. And I wanted to convey that in the painting. I know also he talks, when he used to have his radio show, he talks a lot about his relationship to cookies and eating too many cookies and, like, needing to go to the gym and then he needs to work out <laughs> for the shows that he does. And so he's got these kind of public um, already relationship where he talks about his body issues and I thought well that's where the interesting thing is is like he's not comfortable there Mm. but I wanted to paint him topless in that space of vulnerability and rawness and the only thing that he said when he went to look at the portrait viewing he was like oh you painted my belly fat that was all he said so I didn't know if he liked it or not anyway we still talk occasionally but but
0: <laughs> that, well, I never. I didn't notice that, but it was interesting. I think there was a pro There was two figures of him. One was profile, and one was straight on. Uh, it was a great. I, I loved that work. I really loved. it. I think you did a beautiful Thank job. You. Actually, now that I think about it, I think I just skipped over something I'd like to go back to, and that is just that we've already launched into portraiture, which is a huge part of your work and abstraction. We will discuss later as well. But in the early days, you did have a couple of shows of still lives and that's where you really started off when you're exhibiting um can you tell me a bit about that
1: Mm. so there's a whole chapter that was pre-instagram you know in my in my um exhibitions I did no I did have um 2004 2006 were very self-portrait and photorealist 2009 started to loosen up with the opera room and then 2010 I did and 11 and 12, I did shows that were interior spaces, so the Loft Suite, then Le Corbusier's, um, Le Cabernon, and then Chandigarh, uh, where he designed the Government College of Art. And so these spaces were the subject matter. And once you start looking at space, when you take the figure out, you start to get skills and understanding of space, whether you flatten areas, um, it starts to go into abstraction. Then I did three shows of still life series and, and look they each had a conceptual framework that's going to take too long to go into. but there was aspects where I didn't always control what the objects were in the still life. Mm. And so then I was really pushed to work out how do I make a painting successful in what I would deem successful with these elements that I haven't controlled. And I started to look a lot more, not just at what was in front of me, but a lot more at painting references, like for, you know, techniques. So I'd look directly at paintings that I liked, um, cubism, purism, and really borrow techniques, colours, forms, and develop a sort of language that moved beyond realism and looking at just purely what's in front of you and observation. And And I think then from there, that started to come into the portraits. I started to build up this sort of confidence with form and shape and colour and stylization. And then that kind of was like this launch pattern. Then you kind of look at the portrait I did of Gillian Triggs and it's got Mm. all those aspects, all those elements in it, including a still life element. Um, Yeah, and and I think what I guess where it's kind of important to note is that it didn't, it wasn't a, quick launch into abstraction is this is like years of experimenting and doing things and not every show is like commercially successful but I also think that it was important that I just did it um and develop and gave myself that time to develop without sort of being too worried about well of course you want to cover your costs but it doesn't always happen
0: you're right in order for an artist to really find their language. It's not you can't just jump from what you were doing in 2005 to what you're doing now. That is a that is definitely not something that that can happen overnight. And it's yeah. interesting that you've you you know I want to talk a bit more about portrait and actually the self portrait because that is something that, you know, if anybody goes to your website, your wonderful website, they're going to see dozens of self-portraits, just absolutely brilliant works. And of course, you have painted a lot of, um, notable people as well, which have been hung in the Archibald. But it was a self-portrait that was going to win you the Archibald. And it was a self-portrait after George Lambert in 2018. And you were actually the te- only the 10th woman to win the prize in its 100, well, almost 100-year history at that point. And, you know, a lot of my listeners, and I'm always interested in hearing about how it felt on that day when you actually won? What was your experience like winning, even though you'd been a finalist several times before?
1: Well, to mentally prepare, I always look at really how can I value the experience of not winning? And, you know, (laughs) you go there and the opportunity to even just be selected as a finalist and then you go as a finalist and then you have a lunch the, with the subjects and the artists the day before the announcement and you really want to prime yourself to really make the most of the experience and the opportunities just to talk and make friends or acquaintances with other artists who gather from all over Australia. So I went with yeah. that mindset.
0: Yeah. And I read somewhere that actually you had only painted it the week before, which is mm. unheard of. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is correct. Um, but what it was I actually had done a whole lot of other studies and had begun another version, um, and I was kind of held up getting onto it because I was working on a commission that um, it was actually a a former a posthumous portrait of a former politician, a premier in Victoria who died. This isn't from the nineteen hundreds. So it was from a black and white photo. It's oh, just okay. interesting that I was working on that. And then I was also working on a portrait that was inspired by a female politician, which was Jacinda Ardern. And that just kind of was all happening at the same time. But I was a bit frustrated that I was running out of time. And so I had a month to go. And two weeks in of reworking this other one, uh, which was a very different painting, I just thought, no, that's not, it's just not finished. I'm going to have to put so much more paint on. It won't dry. I should just start again and start fresh. So because it was such a, I would have had only four days to work on it within that week. And because I didn't have a lot of time to think about it, things just fell into place and I just had to run with it and not just, just get it done. And it was only when I was finished um, putting my entry together that I, uh, you know, I was thinking about the title. And that moment when I was doing the title, I thought, oh, actually, it looks a like this George Lambert portrait of hero Roberts or a bit like a self-portrait it's been sort of likened to as well by him and I thought that seems really obvious like I've cop- like I've referenced it not that I had consciously but sometimes your influences just come out without you realizing and, and so I decided to acknowledge it in the title.
0: Ah oh, that's so Ellie. interesting so it wasn't uh, something that you had thought of at the beginning it no. was something that after you'd painted it that you had sort of seen in in it.
1: Yeah, totally. I was hoping to go for a more 70s vibe. It just just came out, 1940s. Anyway. (laughs) Yeah, look, I will say that that week felt incredibly intense and that I had to get it to a level that was the best product of my practice because, you know, I thought even if the judges take it in to the finals, I need to feel like, I'm not embarrassed by it. But when I finished it, I didn't even know what I thought of it because it was like I hadn't had any space. It was at the photographers, it was still probably wet. Um I was exhausted. And I think it was the pressure that was exhausting. Like like my own stress of trying to do the best I could in that limited time was really intense.
0: Do you think that that intensity actually made you produce something you might not have produced if it wasn't you didn't have that time constraint?
1: A hundred percent, a hundred percent. It would be a completely different painting. So I think that intensity really came through in the work and that's why it won. So all these things that while at the time you feel like, oh, this is the worst experience, like it's so hard, um, I think we're too quick sometimes to judge. You don't know how things will turn around.
0: Mm, Yeah.
1: (laughs) And there's so many experiences you could say that about how, you know, something looks dire, but then it turns out and kind of something good turns around from it.
0: I just want to talk a little bit about the self-portrait as well because um, you've done so many fabulous works in this genre. In particular, one of the ones that I really enjoyed seeing and it became quite um, well-known, was your nude self-portrait after Raphael in 2016. I remember first seeing it in the Portuguese and then it ended up in the Know My Name exhibition in the NGA and they were using it a lot, you know, to advertise that show. So, you know, I think a lot of people have seen that. It was a very beautiful work. Can you tell me a little bit about your approach with self-portraits and and sort of how how it works in the studio and, you know, how you come up with your ideas and and, and inspirations in that regard?
1: They, look, they all have a different process and a different way of finding and arriving at an image and we'd be here for days if I tried to tell you all of them. But um, So, you know, you sort of can say one process but it doesn't represent all the ways that I would work. Um, with that nude... <laughs> I was in a show I was curated to be in a show at Lon Gallery in Melbourne and I actually think they do an annual show of nudes because Lon L O N stands for lots of nudes. Oh okay, right. I think that's the I think that's the theme? Yeah. Connection? And so at the set, around the time of that uh, request, I had seen and really admired the Ralph Fizel at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Look, I always go there and come away with a new painting crush anyway. (laughs) And I wanted to.
0: So he was a modernist painter, wasn't he, Ralph Fazel?
1: Yeah. So contemporary of Grace Crowley, Ralph Bolson, um, you know, you couldn't hang it on your wall at home, unfortunately, because it's at the gallery. So I thought, oh well, I guess I'll just have to make my own version. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And and I'm not, I've always so because I started really young working with self-portraits, and it was before selfie culture, you know, I was of the generation that still thought that if you were doing, if you sort of drew that much attention to yourself, you must be narcissistic. Um, We are in a culture now that is breeding narcissistic character, you know, traits. But at the time I was working in it, I was really thinking about art history and as well the media and, you know, how as a young woman, because I did my first self-portrait when I was 17, so I was still at school, and you're still trying to find who you are as a person and how do you operate in the world and what are your options? What should you adopt? And there is this sense in our in our contemporary culture still that very much that, you know, you've got some choices like of how you construct your own persona and what agency that gives you. But I think women in the art world knew centuries ago that the way they positioned themselves within their painting practice would give them a certain level of agency within the male-dominated art world. Mm -hmm. So that you've got that historical reference but then you've got this saturated media environment where women's images are used to trade all kinds of commodities yeah. Um. And then you've got the history of art and, you know, the development in Western art history of modernism and the use of the female form through that development. And so really the, the sort of men have been trading on women's image, images in their kind of explorations of modernism, cubism, you know, um, abstract expressionism, all these kind of ways. And so... As a young woman, how do you then find a language that you can inhabit as a form that feels like you are finding your own way of mm. being in the world, that is your own, that feels embodied as an image,
0: even though it's a two-dimensional thing? It's pretty fraught. Well, that's right, and it does need it does need you to do it over and over again in order to find your way with that, I would have thought.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and and I suppose as you change and you're always find you know you're always shifting as a person, um, how you view yourself, how you think other people view you, how can you find a new sense of yourself, and also just how do you how do you utilize yourself as a model when you are a portrait painter and you don't always have the money to pay for a model to be there every day, all day? Well, exactly. Some, oh,
0: that's a big part know of it, it I think. sometimes. Yeah, no, that is totally true because you can start a painting whenever you want and you don't have to worry about all that side of it. Um, and you also yeah. don't worry about pleasing anybody and yes. or tapping into what they think or anything like that.
1: Yes, or exploiting a model. In any way, you know, trading on somebody else's image, but I also was mindful not that I didn't want to exploit my own image, um, and you know, I don't know how you define what that is. I think everyone has to do that for themselves, and I suppose that's where social media um, also ha- f- poses the, these questions to every single person that's online. But um, I suppose with the that's why I did avoid doing any nude. Images of myself, but this was so kind of veiled in a slightly cubist form that it didn't feel that it felt nude rather than naked, it didn't feel too exposed.
0: No, I can, I can see that it was slightly sort of stylized in a way. Um, Oh, definitely do not have,
1: um, conical cubist Jean Paul Gaultier (laughs) bra shaped form, but um, look, I think it was a challenge for my mum thinking like oh just do one nude and it's just for a small show in Melbourne no one's going to see it for it then to end up where it did oh really used as promotional it was in some of the publicity for the National Gallery of Australia and it's out there for the whole of Australia to see yeah Um, yeah yeah you know I think that why I definitely have done some of my artworks have made my mum uncomfortable but also she's not from the art world and I think um, the art world is far more um, bohemian.
0: <laughs> oh, of course, yes, and it's not viewed in that way. Did she get no. used to it in the end?
1: Oh, I don't know if she ever does. I think she just, yeah. in the end, has to look at the attention the work gets and kind of take solace from that. I don't know.
0: Well, it's interesting also when you were comparing it to social media, but in a way, what what you're doing. Um, has got nothing to do with the photograph that you see on social media. That's like yeah. a whole different beast, really, isn't it? I it mean, that, it's not a selfie. Yeah. It's certainly not a selfie, what you're doing.
1: No, 100%. And the process of that, of the way of I make them, is so the complete opposite of a quick selfie. It's really about sitting in a process of painting while you're working as the model and the painter and being so patient with that process but also with how over a period of time you're going to feel so different day to day today and that's going to because you keep searching for how do you find a visual that communicates that energy that you're experiencing whether it's an emotional energy or a psychological space that you're in a mood you're always wanting to align the visual with that and I think that um, once you've done that ongoing and had that process it really also sets you up to be able to be an abstract painter because that is 100% what you are doing is trying to align uh, the visual with the energy
0: well I'd like to get on to talking a bit more about abstraction and Probably the best place to talk about that is your most recent show with Sullivan and Strumpf, which I went to a few months ago. It was absolutely fabulous. It was called Pressage, and it included you know a collection of works which range from sort of more figurative to totally abstract, in my view, and with absolutely beautiful, vivid colours as well. Um, I think that show, it, it originated from seeing seeing a Roger Kemp retrospective at the NGV a few years ago. Can you tell me a bit about that?
1: Yes, absolutely. And so I went to a beautiful exhibition of Roger Kemp at the NGV in 2019 and at the same time Charles Nordrum had a show of his and Eastgate Gallery also. But what I remember coming away um, from the exhibition being really inspired. It was like a really good painters, you know, good for painters yeah. to see. And I was so like had this hunch like I want to respond to this work in a more feminine visual language. Um, and when I, uh, a lot of things happened in three years, um, but when I sort of thinking back to the works that spoke to me most, I thought I'm going to do a bit of research There was a small series of small paintings of some early works that did have figures in them, and normally we just think of him as completely abstract, but some have figures and they're quite stylish. Sometimes you see a bird or something in his large works, but there were these little coloured figures and they were in little formations and some of them were like groups, uh, large groups, and some were just more spread out, but there were some quite like beautiful painterly things happening. And when I researched it, he was actually um, really into, okay, in 19 sort of uh, for a few years, um, I think 1936 to 1940, the Ballet Roots toured Australia and with some productions. Mm. And one of their productions in 1939 was Les Pressages and a lot of, artists in Melbourne went to see It was really popular. Roger Kemp went several times and there was something yeah. about the excitement, the joy, the dynamism and aliveness of the dance and the figures that he wanted to infuse in his work. He also had a lifelong interest in music and I think he wanted to be an opera singer. I wanted to be an opera singer too in high school, but anyway. <laughs> um, I think he wanted to... Uh, just find a way to bring that experience into his work. And that continued with his abstraction as well. Um, But I just thought it was so interesting that the time it was um, uh, performed in Melbourne was only a few months prior to the Prime Minister announcing that Australia would join Allied forces in World War II. And so that you had something so incredibly joyful, so beautiful, such a beautiful expression of humanity and creativity at the brink of something so tumultuous that actually ruptured the whole fabric of society. In Europe, it brought my family after the war to Melbourne because they wanted to get away. You know, my grandparents survived the Holocaust and Mm. they they had children soon after but wanted to get away from Europe as far as they could, so they came to Australia. And I just thought, wow, I'm responding to work that was happening in Melbourne right before all of that stuff happened that then brought me to Melbourne. Yes. Uh, And I was born here and I just felt like it was at a point where there was, and it was called le pressage, and pressage in English, which is a French word, is like, some kind of almost like something that's on before something happens, and yeah. I mean I haven't got the exact definition in my head, but it could sound more like ominous, but not it's not necessarily an ominous foreboding. But we kind of take it to mean that, and I think mm-hmm. a lot of us feel we are living through that kind of same time. We're on in an ecological tipping points so are happening all around us, and we know that this decade is a. It's like we have this tiny window to slow the trajectory of climate change and what kind of world we are creating Um, that's been, like, a long time coming. But so, yeah, I feel like an antidote to not doing anything is to feel your aliveness and rather than being stuck in fear and doom scrolling where you just feel, like, paralysed to do anything, it's like how can the arts nourish People so that they feel uplifted enough, on, you know this bringing in energy. I don't think it's a literal thing. I feel like it's a very indirect way of activism,
0: <laughs> very oblique. Well, in a way, you you need to have joy and to show um, the joie de vivre in order to see what you don't want to lose. Yeah, in a way, and exactly. that's and and yeah. and I should just describe briefly. For the listener, what sort of things we're talking about, and and it originated from uh, you actually taking that idea of the dancing from the ballet Russe and actually dancing yourself and and getting into a costume, including a long silk um, fabrics, a wind machine, a photographer, a musician were also mm. involved. Where you took photographs of yourself dancing, and and this body of work came out of that whole experience. Can you tell me a bit about that process?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I can just run you through step by step. I worked with two people, a composer, a music composer, Rosalind Orlando, and a photographer, amazing photographer, Bronwyn Kidd. So where it began was Rosalind came to the studio, she brought her flute and improvised musical just improvisational stuff and it was really beautiful. And then I started sketching and then I did some color studies while she was playing the flute. And and that kind of I think I just did a few that day. And then after she left I continued making a whole lot of studies. I probably made 30 colour oil sketches on on paper, oil sketch paper. So I started to see with the forms that were coming through and colours and so and the experiments. Then I thought about, okay, I do want to include figures. Um, I do want to have some component of the figure. So I was like, okay, just the figure by itself is a bit boring. So I'm going to need to create a costume that links it to the abstraction. So I tried to think what could I do that would be create these kind of looping forms that, um, so I. So I so cut you, up,
0: you did the looping forms
1: first, and then you just the abstraction came first. All right, yeah. So then I made the costumes, thinking about the colours that were going to be the palette. So I'd go fabric shopping, thinking about painting what colours. I made five different coloured costumes. I only wore like one or two in the, the in the paintings that I chose for the final thing for the work. Um, so I made I just cut up strips of silk. So I'd, and then very simply, sort of sewed them to um, something that tied around the neck so that it would really have movement. Then we used a wind machine that and then I had to jump around in front of the wind machine um, in <laughs> ballet slippers for several hours with the photographer Bronwyn Kidd and just trying to make interesting shapes that would then mm. look like the abstract, like kind of linked back towards the abstraction. And Rosalind was at the photo shoot, so she was making note, like musical notes for herself She was really part of that process, just watching it unfold. I then, she went overseas traveling and I had to make, start making the show. And so some of the smaller abstract works that there was um, various sizes, there was a wall of the smaller ones. I actually began painting the figures on there as studies. I only left one, the rest, but I actually painted over them. And they became pure abstraction. There were no figures.
0: Yeah, they had that, they sort of felt like these swirling curves, uh, which really gave a feeling of movement in those abstract works. And that wall that you're talking about, like when you came into the gallery on the right hand side, there was, a, I think, seven in a row. And they were so powerful. And each of them had their own color scheme, they were quite um, intense. So it's very interesting that they started off as figures underneath.
1: They did, um, and only the small works. Um, most of the others, like the medium sized works, were pretty all um, abstract from the start. And then I had, I had a triptych. It was actually going to be two diptychs, but one of them was figures that I didn't think worked. So, I made it completely abstracted, but it was then I had a very simple sketch of the figures in movement. And I thought actually, this the really simple charcoal sketch, which was so stylized, was more interesting than the sort of more literal figures. So, that went towards more abstraction. And then there was another one that I right at the last work I made. Which then ended up being in the Goulburn Gallery. I had started it vertically and I did have a figure because I had done a uh, had photos where I put all the costumes on it together and I had this multicolored thing. And I tried to paint that and I didn't feel I started it and I thought, no, that's not working. So I turned it to the side and I made it completely an
0: abstract and like a very sort of flowy abstraction. Well, that, was that fun to paint? I mean, did you enjoy that? Do you enjoy that process? Look,
1: to be honest, I had a really busy year last year and I didn't have as much time as I really needed to do it calmly. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I I worked, I didn't have a social life. It it was pretty intense. Um, And and I think mentally the um, pressure that I had mentally of feeling like I'm racing towards this deadline and I don't know if I'm going to pull it off um so anxiety
0: so a bit of yeah anxiety. I
1: just yeah, yeah so that in a way that was a bit of a driver but right after a few weeks I had a, some friends who were painters visit the studio and they're like oh you're finished you've done your show and I was like oh really I've done a show <laughs> like I sort of didn't believe it until that my friend said and once I knew that it was pretty much in the bag then I was like I'm going to do another work and it will be with a bit more feeling relaxed. Ultimately, my goal would be not only do I want to give the viewer something joyful and uplifting, it, it needs to be that experience for me too. And I think that's where I really want to shift into. But I know, and I'll say this for other painters to hear, I spent a lot of time in my 20s and 30s working really hard and under a lot of stress. Mm. And I'd push myself to meet all my deadlines. Like I've met pretty much, I don't think there was a deadline I didn't meet and I would probably overcommit constantly because when you're trying to make um, a a viable career and you really just take, you say yes to stuff and then you just try and and meet those. So I'd be working sometimes when I should have been asleep or when I just didn't feel like it and, you know, I'd just push really hard. You get to a point, I don't know, everyone says this. It's like you establish something and then you get to a point, you're like, okay, but I can't keep doing that because I just don't have that kind of, I don't want to pull that out every time I do a show. You want it to feel like you're enjoying that process, like Mm -hmm. you're giving, but it's got to keep, it's got to give to you first. Otherwise, you can't sustain it.
0: So you don't feel as though that's just the way you work. You're trying to find a way that you're not going to be working like that.
1: And I have found it at times, definitely I do find, you know, that joyful exuberance, like you're feeling at peace, you're feeling joy. And I feel like that is such a priority for me now. Mm. I think as a collective we're in a bit of a, you know, reorienting how we want to work and maybe the pandemic kind of was a reset for some people. Some people had to go straight back into like the grind um, but I will just say, like you know, I uh, has been a lot of effort and a lot of projects that were really stressful and hard.
0: I suppose it's got to do with deadlines. Often, though, doesn't it? Yeah, if the deadlines too close.
1: Yeah, and so now I'm sort of m- much more mindful. Doesn't I mean I'll get it right every time. <laughs> Some projects you just take look; they take as long as they take. But it's, yeah, that's been yeah. So I would say, like that sort of for me, that show in a way triggered some of that sort of pressures that I had already worked through in my 20s and 30s, which Mm. were like, oh, my God, I've got to, you know. But I was like also the fact that I had a huge break between solo shows. So I hadn't had a solo show for six years.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: And people would be surprised because I had done so much other stuff. And so I feel like in a practice and how I would view mine is there are different facets of it that you want them to somehow be all in balance and it did feel it was really out of balance but I also was independent so I didn't Mm -hmm. have a gallery for five years um, and that was really motivating to focus on you know art prizes which you know didn't know how that was going to work out but also commissions and I was taking on um, a lot of commission portraits and all those things take up time and then you're putting on hold the body of work that you want to make however Mm -hmm. in that space of you are still developing all your skills and you're developing Definitely. in ways that you don't realise are actually going to facilitate the body of work that you want to make. So maybe when I first saw Roger Kemp, I wasn't ready to respond. I didn't have the language yet,
0: you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's so interesting. And tell me about commissions. How do you find those? Do you find that a stressful experience or?
1: Yeah, it's varied. Um, you know, each project is like a interesting because you're problem solving in ways that you wouldn't be if you weren't painting that person um, You and you have this opportunity to meet somebody you would never normally spend time with. Um, the ones that have probably been the most difficult were the posthumous portraits from black and white photos. That is a whole other level of difficult <laughs> and I challenge. I could imagine, yeah. Like a whole other and to make it look on par with the work a, a, a product of, you know, anything else that you would do that you're working with a live person from, you know, colour photos that you've taken mm. and to make it have the same quality of paint. So
0: true because so, you've only got one source and, yeah. and also you haven't gotten to speak to them or get any idea of what they're like.
1: Yes, and you just, yeah, you didn't get to create the visual ingredients yourself. So when I... You know, but that's a different level of problem-solving.
0: Oh, okay. So it's more like the composition. You're stuck with that composition in a way and that expression. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, converting a black and white photo into a colour painting. I would go through just layers and layers and various iterations.
0: Oh, I'd love to see one of those. Oh, they're on my website under commissions. Oh, okay, I might put that on the website.
1: There are two women uh, who were some two of the early principals of Melbourne Girls' Grammar and they're very beautiful historic images And but you also try to find a balance of how do you make it look like, yes, you are painting a historical image but it's also a contemporary painting. So you've got to find that balance. Look, it's really interesting. It's just um, I, I don't want to do more of them but mm. I, um, you know, I'm happy with how they turned out, but with your with the people that I paint, it all varies. Like it depends on um, how much input they want. So I think um Sometimes people come pretty much ready-made, like this is the outfit, this is, you know, and you just decide the pose and the composition with them, but, you know, they've got, they're all put together. But other times people appreciate you helping with the styling and the makeup and I'll look for outfits for them.
0: Oh, that's right. So Sometimes you do their makeup for them as well.
1: Yeah, well, I had done a bit of work as a makeup artist. I never tried to get more work, actually, but I—I I just for fun, I, I've done like film and a fa- one fashion parade, but I've done like three or four weddings. Um, and I, I'm not trying to get more work because I don't really, it's, it's just I don't have time, but uh, one of my clients who I did the wedding portrait for, she was getting married into state, and so she wasn't able to have, a makeup artist and have a trial before the wedding. But I did her makeup trial. So she, and I was going to the wedding as my research.
0: So oh, right. I ended
1: up doing her wedding makeup on the day, which <laughs> was such a delight and a privilege. Fabulous. Yeah. And then um I photographed it. And then that was 2019. They got married. In 2020, I was painting it during the pandemic when we were like not going to any weddings. And it was like, Trying to make a joyful painting when we didn't feel it at all. Oh, how interesting. Yeah.
0: Um, or another aspect of your work, which I find really interesting, is the support you use because in a lot of those, in those works, even at Sullivan Strumpf, you were using jute, which is quite a rough what what is jute? Is it yeah. is it cotton? I'm not quite sure what that is. Hessian. Okay. And yeah. what do you like about it?
1: Um, I had been wanting to work with it for probably also three years. Um, but I didn't know the best way to do it. So when I, had done a lot of sort of, um, trials with buying jute from a fabric store, stretching it, putting some clear sealer, but it goes really wobbly. Like it doesn't hold, it hasn't got the sort of tautness of linen and, and things like that. So what I then discovered was my art store had a just randomly a bolt of jute that was one side had gesso on it. So I began, I was like, "Oh!" so I used the gesso side for a few works, which was some of the, my dancer works prior where I had another figure. And also I used it for some of my portraits. But then I was like, you know what? I really would love to try the other side and the unprimed and leave some of it showing if I can. Mostly I covered it up because it just got overworked, but I let I primed it with a clear primer and also it's a much rougher texture than the gesso. Yes. And I was like I ordered the canvases for the whole show and I was like I hope this works. <laughs> I just didn't have time to um spend much time experimenting and I was like well I guess I'm just going to get acquainted with how how to use it how to manipulate paint how it changes Mm. and it does really change um I I love looking at Jenny Watson because she works on burlap and hessian and really coarse things it takes more effort to get your paint sometimes Sometimes not. I don't know. You kind of develop a touch for it.
0: And also the paint you, you, you use in those works particularly, they were quite impasto and quite textured.
1: They do build up and um, I think that process of building up the layers just came about through the process of being like, well, that when there were paintings that didn't work, I didn't feel, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, a painting failed. But to me it's, it was like how do you, overcome this sense of failure and actually just build it into your process. So if something in a way fails, you just, well, well, it's not finished yet. So a portrait, if it failed as a portrait, well, that could create still opportunities for it to become an abstract painting. Like it might have been too textured for it to be anything else, but it could still go in another direction completely. So I started doing that um, a few years ago and then seeing how that would build up. Uh, with the layers, I then consciously thought, oh, maybe I'll add some other things to the paint. So I started to add sand.
0: Oh, right. Yeah, it's so that lovely, gritty quality. It's so beautiful. People actually have to see it in real life because it's one of those sort of surfaces that it's just so thrilling to see it, you know, in person. Um, another thing I wanted to talk to you about was what is, is about whether you have a routine and whether, you know, how do you get into the flow of painting when you get into the studio? Is that difficult for you?
1: Um, I thought My routine has really meandered around and over the years and uh it sort of depends on what kind of project I'm working on what the deadline is um what the season is what my energy is what I you know what I feel like I need I think one of the things that is a challenge is that we all face is that with this um emails that are coming in and messages constantly on our phone. And if you take that into the studio, it's really hard to switch off and paint while you think someone's waiting for a response within the hour. And that really breaks up your flow. So I've really, my new sort of thing is, well, if I just tell everyone I can't, who are expecting a response, if, if people know that I will get to them either in the morning, so before lunch or after six o'clock, and then I have a mentally a break and for myself just to sort of be like, that time I'm going to work in the studio, and I may start earlier, but I won't um, feel compelled to reply to everything straight away until I finish that. So I can build in a space, a mental
0: space for myself. Mm. Yeah, you need sort of to set boundaries, don't you? And and you sort of think that ev- that everything's urgent, but actually it can wait.
1: Yeah. I think sometimes, you know, painting, it is a very physical thing. There are ways to fast track a flow state and I definitely feel like exercise is one of them. Like going for a run, doing yoga, I think that or doing some weeding really suddenly helps you just get more into a flow state more
0: quickly. Yep. Oh, totally. Gardening, I agree. Being in nature oh thank you so much for joining me today but i've enjoyed this conversation so much and i love your work um so good luck with your future exhibitions and, and i'm looking forward to your next show
1: thanks maria great to chat with you too
0: What a great artist. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Yvette Coppersmith. I'll be getting a video of Yvette onto the YouTube channel in the coming months, so watch out for that. I'm also catching up on some past video productions, so check out my latest videos of Kim Lutweiler and Adrian Doig on the YouTube channel, and there's a link to that in the show notes. Both the podcast and the YouTube channel are completely free. There are no ads and you can subscribe to both uh, on your podcast app and on the YouTube channel. Also, if you'd like to keep updated on the podcast and YouTube videos, just subscribe to my monthly newsletter and I've put a link to that in the show notes as well. You can also follow the show on social media. Talking with Painters is on Instagram, which is probably the most active platform, but I'm also but it's also on Facebook as well. And you can also always follow me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening and hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters.
1: I lost a work that I made in kindergarten, and I and I felt really sort of sad that I'd lost it. And we looked all over the kinder, you know. So really early. What
0: was it? What was it? A uh, drawing, it, you mean? Or...
1: <laughs> no, it was, it was a cardboard tree next to a macaroni stream river.
0: Oh, like a collage sort of thing.
1: Yeah, like a three D painting, I suppose. Like the tree stood up, and then I had like the macaroni as the water. And I wouldn't remember it if I didn't lose it and I was, like, really upset. So I feel like I had this connection to stuff that I made from very early...